The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall. The pain peeling off the walls. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us, as you know, every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and at the end of the day, we archive the show, and then you can listen to it anytime you want on your MP3. Um, this morning, I have two guests. My first guest is Bill Ferguson, and he's author. He has a new book called Get Your Power Back. Get Your Power Back. And uh, he's going to be talking to us about why certain areas of life don't work. Everyone has certain areas of life that don't work, and these areas of life may seem to be a problem, but they're not, says uh, Bill Ferguson. They're, they are symptoms of something deeper the moment you resolve these deeper underlying conditions, these areas of life begin to clear up. So uh, we'll be talking about that in the first half hour. And then the second half hour, uh, I have uh, author Joy Layden, and her new book is called Through the Door of Life, A Jewish Journey Between Genders. Joy Layden is a professor of English at Stern College for Women of the Yeshiva University and is the first openly transgender employee of an Orthodox Jewish institution. But first, Bill Ferguson, welcome to the show. He's here with us now. Nice to have you on. Well, it's great to be here with you. I'm looking forward to this. Terrific. Okay, get your power back. We always want to get our power back. There's no question about that. So tell us about the book. Um, I know you, you're not only an author, but you have workshops. You have audio courses. We can go to your website, masteryoflife.com, for information about all those topics, as well as the new book, Get Your Power Back. So I guess if it's Get Your Power Back, Bill, then it means that we've lost our power along the way. Um, Yes, yes, and and also, see, every time there's an area of life that isn't working, that area of life is never, never the problem. It's the symptom. And any time there's an area of life that isn't working, that's an area where we've lost our power, because that area of life is on top of us. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about it in detail. Okay, so you're saying, give us specific examples. What does that actually mean? Let's talk about different areas of life that are not working. Um, let's, yeah, you know, because I like to be really, give us specific kinds of examples. Well, if you have a relationship that's not working, actually, if you've got finances that aren't working, um, literally any area of life that's not working, and everybody has certain areas of life that aren't working. Like in the workshops, I ask people, how many of you all notice there's certain areas of your life that don't work, and that these areas may clear up from time to time, but they keep coming back over and over again? You know, and everybody raises their hand. And what we don't notice is that the areas of life that don't work, they keep showing up over and over again. Why they keep showing up is because we actually create them. 
Okay, let's give an example, a couple, because, I mean, at marriage, I mean, I'm a social worker. I used to do a lot of marriage counseling, so couples. And I think, you, as you said, you know, they get along for a while, and then they start fighting again. And then, you know, things sort of clear up, but they never really get resolved. So what you're saying is they are never, they are not resolved, and there's just... Well, you look, well, you look in relationships. See, the number one biggest killer of relationships is not being at peace with the truth of the way that somebody is. So let's say you and I have a relationship. Well, you're the way you are, whether I like it or not. If I cannot be at peace with the truth of the way that you are, I'm going to be judgmental, I'm going to be critical, I'm going to be non-accepting, and then and I'm going to interact in a way that destroys love, and then you get hurt, and then you react to that, and then you give it back to me, and then I get hurt, and I give it to you, and you give it to me, and we create this cycle of conflict. And what happens most often... When there's a relationship that's not working, it's that there's these nerves that get triggered. You do what you do, strikes a nerve in me. I react negatively in a way that strikes a nerve in you, and it's back and forth like ping pong. And the same thing goes on in any area of life, any area, literally any area of life that isn't working. Why it's not working is that there's a nerve that's being triggered. When that nerve gets triggered, we're threatened. And then we operate in a state of fear, upset, and tunnel vision. The tunnel vision destroys our ability to see what needs to be done, and it forces us to act destructively. So any area of life where this nerve gets triggered, that area of life isn't going to work. All right, let's take another example then, okay, you just, you know, we just you described what happens between a couple. What happens at your work, let's say, and that's not working for you? You get up, and many people are in this situation. They get up in the morning. They have to go to work. They, whatever it is, they get there. They don't like their boss. There's always an issue, always a problem, yet they keep on getting up in the morning and going to the same job, but it's not working. Well, let's look at the dynamic that causes things to not work. See, at any moment, what so is always what so. See, there's, there's the reality and our reality, and they are not even closely connected. In the reality, things just are. What so is what so. What is is. What happened happened. Period. That's the reality. Our reality consists of all the thoughts, the feelings, the emotion, the judgments, the opinions, the points of view. So there's the truth and then there's our stuff about it. And it's our stuff about it that shapes our lives and determines what happens in it. So are you saying, Bill, like if we go to work and we say we, you know, we're just not satisfied with our job, and part of it is because we haven't really been truthful about what the job is, we make up stories about it, and of course... Then well, yeah, always we're fighting this, the truth. Yeah, there's always a dissonance because it really isn't the truth. Is that it? Well, my wife and I have a black and white cat. That cat won't bark. I can yell at the cat. I can scream at the cat. I can rationalize with the cat. It doesn't make any difference what I do. That cat's still not going to bark. That's the truth. The areas of life that work great are areas where you can be at peace with the truth. And then when you're at peace with the truth, then you can put your focus on, okay, given that's the truth, what do I need to do? Given that the cat doesn't bark and I want to hear barking, what do I need to do? I need to go get a dog. That's where life works. If you look at any area of life that doesn't work, that's an area where we're fighting the truth. 
So instead of putting the focus on what do I need to do, given what the truth is, we're fighting the truth. And when we do that, we destroy our ability to find solutions. We destroy our ability to see what works, and we act in a way that magnifies the problem. So why do we do this? Where does this come from? Because it's so dysfunctional. And, you know, when you, as you're describing it, I think it's so true. I think I like that example of the cat when we're really wanting a dog, but we're... But does that come from from what? From our parents or the way we were raised or, you know, because I think that's so pervasive. Um, yes, and, and you want to notice that different people get upset at different things. You know, different people get upset at different things because different because each person has a different set of nerves that get triggered. See, why we fight the truth is because the truth hurts. It strikes a nerve. <laughs> See, on the surface, we resist certain circumstances. Is it because we don't want to feel bad? You say it strikes a nerve, makes us feel uncomfortable or sad or... or I, I can well, let's you... look at what the nerve is. Okay. See, when we're born, we're born pure love. But we're born into a world that kills love. So in the process of growing up, every single one of us experiences very, very painful losses of love. And as a little child, the only way we can explain these painful losses of love is to blame ourselves. Clearly, I'm the problem. And then we decide what that problem is. I'm not good enough. I'm not worth loving. I'm worthless. I'm a failure. I'm this. I'm that. And it's never the truth that we're this way, but in the eyes of a little child, it becomes our truth. And then we spend the whole rest of our lives running from it. And if any circumstance comes along and hints that we really are worthless, not good enough, or whatever, if any circumstance comes along and triggers that suppressed emotion, that circumstance will be perceived subconsciously as a major threat, which then forces us to fight it, which then magnifies the problem. It sounds gruesome. We have to... I mean, it, no, it does, and I and I and I see it. I see it myself. You know, as I was reading your book, I mean, and my friends, and uh, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. See, and everybody on the planet has got this hurt. Everybody's got a different hurt, and each person avoids it in a different way. But wherever that hurt manifests, that area of life doesn't work. And what happens in our culture is we don't ever notice that this is going on because in our culture, all the focus is on the circumstances, but the circumstances are never the problem, they're the symptom. Does that have anything to do with, like, false expectations when you're talking about, like, fighting the truth? Um, I mean, you say in your book, fighting the truth keeps you, we keep saying this, keeps you from finding solutions. Um, but then we create false expectations about oh, we do all sorts of crazy things yeah. to avoid feeling this. Well, the thing that I found is that literally every single area of life that doesn't work can be traced to the automatic subconscious avoidance of a very specific hurt. Every self-sabotaging behavior pattern, every area of life where we suffer can be traced to the automatic subconscious avoidance of this hurt. And the thing that's such great news is that it all can be healed. Because none of it's based on fact. <laughs> this is all stuff that got made up in the eyes of a little child and then magnified throughout the years. 
So how does this fit into, uh, you know, I, I kind of see ourselves in somewhat as an addictive society, you know, bloated, we overeat, we overspend, um, you know, our houses are too big, we can't afford them, all of those kinds of things, we're overweight. Um, how does this, you know, um, getting your power back, how does that fit into the, the whole addiction problem? Well, all addiction is pure avoidance of hurt. You know, we overeat to not to avoid the hurt. You know, we all the alcoholism, the drug addiction, the workaholism, the, the you know every kind of addiction you can think of. Ultimately, it's done to avoid our hurt. We run from our feelings, and we never notice it. So. If we don't know, we have to, but don't we first have to become aware of it before Absolutely. we do something about Absolutely. it? Absolutely, because, see, because when you, see, because this hurt, all this stuff can get healed and removed relatively easy, but, but it's not going to happen if you don't see it. <laughs> see, and once you see what's going on, you can start getting power over it. Because the thing can, this can be healed because it's, because none of it is based on fact. It's just stuff that's been, that's been made up. Okay, so what do we do? We're, we're, things aren't working out well. Uh, you know, we sort of just get by during the day in terms of our relationships, our job, our family, our, you know, uh, you know, how we spend our money, like, you know, all of those kinds of things. What do you suggest to people? I mean, let's say, well, you got Besides buying your book, which they should do. <laughs> let's, let's talk about cause and effect real quick. Okay. Okay, at any moment, we're totally at the effect of the world around us. What we don't notice is that simultaneously, the world around us is totally at the effect of us. That makes us cause. So we're totally at the effect of the world around us, and we're the cause of the world around us. We are the victim of the world around us, and we are the creator of the world around us both at the same time, but we only experience ourselves as being one or the other. When you are at the effect of life, life is on top of you, you're powerless. When you're at cause in life, you're on top of life, you can chart your course. So the name of the game is to learn to live at cause, because when you're at cause, you can see what you need to do, you can make things happen. Now, there's something very specific that we do that throws away our power that puts us at the effect. And what that is, is fighting the truth of something. If you look at any area of your life that isn't working, no matter what that area is, if there's any area of your life where you suffer, notice that there's a cat that's not barking and we're fighting it. And when you fight it, you magnify the problem, you throw away your power, you, you, you lose your ability to see clearly, you get upset. In relationships, you destroy love, you create opposition and resistance against you, and you, we force that area of life to not work. So the more we can surrender to the truth, the truth really will set us free, because when you can surrender to the truth, you can then put your focus on Given that that's the truth, I don't like it that that's the truth, but given that that's the truth, what do I need to do? Well, let's take a relationship, and you're, you're not looking at the truth in terms of your relationship with your partner, for instance, 
and then finally you're able to look at your part, you know, you realize that your partner is a cat, not a dog. But then what happens when you realize, I don't want a cat? Do I have well, to then leave? maybe you need to, to go look for a dog. Uh-huh. But, it's, but that's where life works is when you can put your focus on what do I need to do based on the truth. And how did you get to this point? I mean, you, well, the hard way. <laughs> well, we want to hear that because yeah, I need okay. to hear, yeah. Well, what happened? What happened is that my big issue was failure, and then in my running from failure, I kept creating more and more failure because whatever the hurt it is that we run from, we keep creating more of it. And so finally, there was a point when I failed so big. I bought a whole bunch of real estate, lost all, the, all my investments, I lost my home, I lost my office, I lost everything. And, and failure was so much in my face, I couldn't escape it. But there was this moment when I, when I let in what an incredible failure I was. Now, there was also part of me, the, the other side of the coin called success. There was an aspect of me called success. But at the time, all I could see was failure. Well, I didn't realize it at the time, but the moment I let in what an incredible failure I was, my fear of failure lost its power. And then simultaneously, the tunnel vision that came from it lost its power. And then, I, and then shortly after that, I felt this wonderful freedom. It's like, oh, how wonderful. I'm a failure. How great. It takes all the pressure off because now I can just be me. <laughs> And that was the point when my life started working. Because we haven't been able to be human. We lost our ability to be human. We lost our ability to be who we are at a very, very early age. And then we spend the rest of our lives chasing the carrot at the end of the stick, which we never get. It's exhausting mentally and physically, and you're using energy, and it's really a negative way of using your energy. Oh, oh it, yes, yeah. and it, it not only does it destroy our lives, but you're discovering that there's a direct link between this suppressed emotion and very serious physical problems. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. So I, for you, at what point in your life... Were you able to realize that, you know, to let go of that or to realize your fear of failure, you know, which was driving you to fail, actually? Um, how old were you? Uh, I'm not sure, probably 35 or so. So it, it took you almost to middle age to be able to... Oh, absolutely. Just, yeah. To, absolutely. To, yeah. Yeah, and, and the thing is that you, know, you, you don't have to hit the bottom to heal. <laughs> You know, you can heal this stuff now. You know, and there's, uh, and there's you know, a number of steps in that. And the, the, the book, Get Your Power Back, shows all the different steps. First step is you want to find what the hurt is. And, you're, and in, in looking for the hurt, one thing to keep in mind is that you're not looking for the truth. You're looking for a childhood emotion. And you're upset will reveal what the hurt is. So you can look at your upsets and look underneath each upset and notice that underneath each upset there's going to be a hurt. Go to the hurt that's under the upsets and then ask yourself, according to the emotion, not the truth, according to the emotion, 
what incredibly painful thing would that say about me? And then you do that with all your upsets, and you'll notice it'll be the same hurt keep showing up over and over and over again. And that's so the hurt that runs our life. You have to recognize the pattern to your hurts. So, yes. Yeah. So there's definitely a pattern. One of the things you say in the book, and uh, uh, because these are some of the bullet points, but this is one that really hit, I, I thought was uh, particularly of interest. Whatever you, and maybe we've touched on it a little, but whatever you resist, it's magnified, and you talk about the yes. four yellow balloons. That's yes. a great example. Of, yeah. Oh, that's so powerful. Yeah, because yeah. we, we, we fight, you know, we fight the truth. And, and action can clear something up, but that state of mind of resisting will actually magnify it. Literally, whatever you resist, you give power to. So, like, if you ever had a relationship with somebody and you resisted a characteristic in that person, notice what happened to the characteristic. It grew. <laughs> if you're in a relationship and you're resisting losing somebody, you'll hang on and you'll push the person out the door. It's like the yellow balloons, the four large yellow balloons. Imagine those balloons on the ceiling above you. Now, whatever you do, don't think about them. <laughs> Literally, the same principle applies everywhere. Whatever you resist, you magnify and give power to. Resisting does not make something clear up. It magnifies it. So it draws you closer to it. You get more, well, in social work terms, kind of more connected onto it. You just, yeah, you get more attached to it. rather. Than... And it brings you to whatever you fear and resist. Look, nothing about fear. A fear is resisting a future event. So if I have a fear of losing somebody, I'm resisting that future event called losing the person. The more I resist losing the person, the bigger my fear, the bigger my fear, the more I'm threatened. The more I'm threatened, the more I hang on, the more I act destructively, which pushes the person away, which brings me my fear. See, life never, 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 never just happens. We interact with life in a very specific way that produces a very specific result. And when we change how we relate to life, we change what shows up around us. Let's talk about blame, because you discuss that in the book, blame. Yes. What, what does blame do for us? I think, you know, most people that I do, that I know, I mean, we're always blaming people for, yes. for right? For our, well, for whatever, blaming, it's not working. Blaming, anger, and resentment are all subconscious defense mechanisms. We blame, we resent, and we have anger so we don't have to look at ourselves. It's a forceful deflection. It's the point over there. That's the problem over there, over there, over there, not over here. And why we don't want to look at ourselves is that we don't want to feel the hurt of that really we're worthless, not good enough, not worth loving or whatever, which is never the truth. It's just an old suppressed emotion, but it's an emotion that's so threatening subconsciously, we'll do anything to avoid feeling it. So in an automatic attempt to avoid feeling it, we blame, we resent, uh, and we have anger. But what happens is anytime you blame, you're throwing away your power. You give your power to whatever you blame, because that's the problem over there. That means I've got nothing to do with it. And if I've got nothing to do with it, there's nothing I can do about it. 
the blaming thing, and I'm relating it to my personal story, you know, divorced 25 years ago, and initially, and I think this happens with couples, you know, blaming the other person, blaming the other, it's all their fault. And it took time to be able to take a look at myself and say, you know what, maybe I was in, somehow had something to do with it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because, in a, because in a relationship, let's say you and I have a problem in our relationship, I'm not accepting judgmental critical towards you. You get hurt, you give it back to me, I give it to you, you give it to me. And then we create this cycle of conflict, this cycle of hurting, attacking, and withdrawing from each other. And what we don't notice is that a cycle of conflict cannot exist without two active participants. <laughs> I'm giving you non-acceptance, you're giving it to me. But what happens is, as long as I'm blaming you... Not only do I give you all of my power, but I'm actually fueling the fire. But if what I can do is see my role in it, I can do something about it. Whenever you blame, you can't do anything about it. When you point at yourself, then you can do something about it. And always, if there's a problem in our life, we've always got something to do with it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in our life. Whether it's your spouse, your boss. No matter what it is. No matter what it is. Yeah, at the very minimum, if there's any area of your life, of our lives that aren't working, there is a truth that we're fighting that's destroying our ability to find solutions and magnifying the problem. So if we read your book and we go through all, then we haven't gone through every single bullet point in the book. Um, do you think that it will give us the ability, after one reads the book, that to be able to sit down and at least identify the problem? I mean, oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Because this this stuff it's it's so obvious once you see it. You see it, and it's like, oh, how could I have gone so long without seeing this? But you can go a whole lifetime and never see it because we're not looking in this direction. <laughs> we're looking outside of us. You cannot read that book and live your life the same way again. <laughs> That's a challenge to my listeners. I want to mention the book again because we only have about another minute left, but get your power back. And, um, you know, we've, we've discussed a lot, but there's a lot more in the book, obviously. And you could go to, it's Bill Ferguson. He is the author. Uh, Bill, you also do workshops and you have an audio course. And your website is Master. Uh, it's MasteryOfLife.com. MasteryOfLife.com. Okay. Yeah, and there's an e-course. There's a free e-course. It actually goes on for nine months, and it literally walks you through the process of transforming your life. And it's, you know, and it's free, and it's, you know, really powerful. Yeah, well, it's there. It's powerful, and so there are no excuses. It's been great having you on the show today. We have to say goodbye because my next guest is coming up, but... Uh, Bill Ferguson, you can get his book online, bookstores everywhere. Get your power back. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed doing this with you. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Uh, coming up next uh, is Joy Layden, and uh, she is a professor of English at Stern College for Women of Yeshiva University and is the first openly transgendered employee of an Orthodox Jewish institution. So don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Want the best life has to offer for you, your family, and friends? There are a number of community-based programs and resources available to individuals for low cost or no cost. No need surfing the net or spending hours on the phone. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with hosts Melissa Jenkins-Simon and Diane Stafford and get the tools to success. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And uh, as I said earlier, and most of you know, you can listen to us live 10 to 11 Eastern on Voice America, and we archive the show at the end of the day, and you can listen to it on MP3 and uh, listen to it anytime you want. Well, my second guest is uh, author Joy Layden. Her book is Through the Door of Life, A Jewish Journey Between Genders, and uh she, as I said before, is a professor of English at Stern College for Women of Yeshiva University and is the first openly transgendered employee of an Orthodox Jewish institution. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Joy. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. Great to have you here. And uh, it's a pleasure. We're going to talk about your new book. Uh, boy, there are so many questions. Uh, you were former professor Jay Layden, uh, and I guess you've made headlines uh, when after you taught at Yeshiva for many, many years and as, as a man and then returned as a woman to the Jewish campus. Um, and uh, this is your story. I'm, so let's talk about it. What was that like for you? <laughs> That's a big question. Uh, it is a big question. Uh, I mean, just taking the narrowest part of it, um, it was it uh, was not ideal to have the New York Post decide to put my return to teaching on page three. Um, when you uh, you know people who make a gender transition in middle age, as I was, it's it's kind of like 
you're going back to junior high school. So you're trying to create a, a, a brand new adult gender identity, um, but which is you know what people generally start to do around junior high school or you know ninth grade. Um, but instead uh, of doing it then, you know, I was 47, something like that. So um, having uh, national attention at that tender age uh, was that was difficult. Um, now you were in, but you're in your late forties, so obviously yes, middle aged. Um, what you know? I, I mean, my, I guess my question is just taking it back a little bit. Um, when did you first realize that you know things aren't right, things aren't working for me? This isn't who I am. I'm in the wrong body, or I, I just feel uh, you know I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, like hmm. growing <laughs> growing up, um, you know, even as a a little boy, um, what was the first time that perhaps you realized there's something not right? Well, I remember having um, having a sense that things weren't working in terms of gender back in preschool. That's my earliest memory of it. Is and it and my memory is actually not so much physical as social. Um, I you know I you know preschool is a time when uh, most kids are really wrestling with gender identity. They're very absolute about it. Boys play with boys and girls play with girls for reasons nobody at that age really knows. And I wanted to play with the girls, and they were really freaked out. Um, and they created, you know, all sorts of ideas about what I was trying to kiss them, I was chasing them, whatever, and I didn't understand what was going on. That seemed like my natural peer group. Uh, I don't remember how I felt about my body at that point. In fact, I don't have a lot of um, very vivid early memories. Uh, but at that point, I did have a, a sense that the way that I was being looked at it, it, by the world wasn't matching the way I felt myself. You know, it, it seems to me, but then, you know, you're, that's prepubescent. So, I mean, a whole lot of stuff happens at puberty, too, I would imagine. So it begins to change. Um, um, and I'd be curious is, you know, in terms of like your relationships and, and uh, you know, what happened during puberty? Yes, well, you know, be, between preschool and puberty, I went through actually some, um, some growth in, in what I would now call transgender identity. That word didn't exist then. Um, many trans people have this kind of, they always feel like something is wrong, but some people come to it later in life, so I don't want to, people to feel like I'm the typical or the only way that this happens. But at first, uh, you know, by the time I was in first grade, I felt like I was, I was, I had to pretend to be a boy. I didn't get it. I didn't know how to do it. And I would, uh, and it was, would be terrible if people discovered that I wasn't really a boy. And so I would sort of study how boys acted and try to find ways to play with them, even though that didn't, Feel like it was coming naturally to me. Around eight, um, in one of my mother's women's magazines, I found an article uh, by a mother who was talking about um, a son who had transitioned to being her daughter. And that was the first time I knew that there was anybody else like me. By that point, I had felt that, you know, I was, not only was I one of a kind, but I probably wasn't human because all other human beings seemed to have the gender thing down. So I was lonely, I was afraid, and I, you know, I didn't 
didn't really feel human. And then I read this article, and it's like, oh, there's a name, transsexual. I liked uh, big words, so I was very pleased that it was a big word. And, um, and there was something that you could do about it, and so suddenly I had a career path, um, and I was happy about that. Um, adolescence was, uh, you know, it was difficult uh, for me. I went to an alternative school, a couple of alternative schools, and the part, so the advantage there for me was that the, uh, the school social systems didn't enforce traditional gender roles. You know, it wasn't like boys are jocks and... Yeah, boys have to play yeah. with trucks and girls with dolls and that kind of stuff. <laughs> exactly. And, the, yeah. you know, the high school equivalent of that, that, that didn't happen. And so I was able to make friends um, with girls. And and I actually talked about being trans to a couple of girlfriends. Now, what but nobody are you talking about? Um, I'm talking about say, ninth grade around there. But, I mean, what year in terms of how old? Oh, yeah. 1970. 1976. So this was the 70s, all right. Yeah, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it really was very different uh, than in a lot, obviously, in a lot of ways, in addition to bad clothes. But um, for for transgender people, there was no Internet. Um, There was very, very little media recognition. There were very few books that were published or articles. There was a, a well, tiny bit. Well, there Renee Richards? She was the tennis, the tennis player, remember? That was the 70s. Yes, that's and, right. Yeah, and and I think she what, she was allowed to play. She was in the um, oh, professional or the Olympics. Now I can't remember, but... Um, and there was a controversy of whether she'd be able to play because she had been a, she was very powerful, but she and strong, but she was a woman, and she was allowed to play. She was a champion. So, did you have any, you know, identification or you know, because there's somebody who's like a, a celebrity who was trans. She was, yeah. yeah, she was my, um, the only celebrity trans person that I was aware of, um, and I didn't. I didn't particularly relate to to her. She's not very um, communally oriented in terms of other trans people. She just really wanted to do her thing. Actually, I walk by her office um, sometimes. She's a doctor of some kind in New York. Um, And she didn't actually do that great as a tennis player. She'd been on estrogen for a long time, and it's testosterone that gives the physical advantages. Um, So she was... She was good. She was much better at playing tennis than I'll ever be. She was competitive, but she she didn't uh, blow people away. It wasn't really like a man playing. Um, But so she got uh, public attention, but because of the sports thing um, and because she didn't present herself as, you know, a representative of a group of people that was misunderstood and discriminated against, didn't do a whole lot for me in terms of my uh, my sense of myself. Well, you grew up in a Jewish family, I'm assuming. I did. And what about your parents or and or siblings? And did you ever feel like you could talk to them or or not or did? And if you did, what, what kind of support did they give you? Um, I never felt that I could talk with them. In fact, I I had this. You know, I really grew up with this feeling that my um, not feeling like the boy that they 
believe that I was was a really shameful and dangerous secret. I was afraid that it would really hurt them uh, if I told them the truth. And also I felt like I was like I was lying all the time. You know, every time I answered to somebody calling my name, every time I tried to act like a boy, I felt that I was lying and misrepresenting myself. And because there was that sense of bad faith, I wasn't sure. And I think that this is... This happens for not just trans kids, but other um, kids who feel like they have a, a hidden difference. I um, I wasn't sure that they really loved me. Like, they loved me, but they didn't know who I was. So, so how really could they love really me? love you because they didn't know who you were? So the love exactly. was based on something that was, to you, false, or you you know you weren't being your true self. Um, I was stealing it. And no. Yeah, and you know, and I think you know, I, I do a lot of uh, you know, I'm very uh, closely tied to the uh, Pride community here in Albany, New York, and uh, still, you know, there are you know fewer transgendered kids, and they have a lot of difficulty, um, even in in the um, in the gay community. It's tough, or I, at least that's what I observe with the kids. It is tough. Um, you know, the, I think uh, rights and for gay and lesbian people have made tremendous strides, and because uh, trans people are grouped in with them, which is, you know, um, often an advantage to trans people because we're very scattered and relatively few and extremely poor uh, compared to gay and lesbian people, um, there's a general idea that uh, things have gotten a lot better for trans people also. And the truth is that um, things have gotten a little bit better. The Obama administration has made some um, important differences, but um, things are pretty awful for trans people. Um, one or two trans people are killed pretty much every week in the United States for being trans. Um, beatings and harassment are quite common. And even in the gay community, um, there isn't widespread understanding of trans people. You know, being being gay or lesbian is a matter of who you love, and being trans is a matter of who you feel you are in relation to your physical self. They're really uh, very different issues, and yeah. a lot of what ties us together is that the same people hate us. Yeah, but the actual issues, as you say, are are different. I mean, what you have, the, the things, the emotional stuff, all that you have to wrestle with. And I was thinking about, like you um, now, you you um, graduated from well, college, and, and you got married. I did. Um, I got married to the woman that I met in my first semester, really my first week in college. Yeah. Well, the next question, I guess, is how long were you married and how, at what point, did you realize this, that you couldn't be married? You have kids, children, um, uh, because that whole process of, of going through the transformation with your family is, is uh, let's talk about that. I think that, uh, um, I mean, that's important to, to understand. Yes. Um, and it's a big reason that I wrote the book, because the... The materials that are written about gender transition mostly focus on the person who's transitioning, and uh, but very nobody really transitions alone. Anybody who to whom you are important, their identity is also affected, and 
um, you know, my kids and, and my wife's lives were were really um, shattered and, and changed by my transition. So I wanted to um, write a story that acknowledged and, and looked at that. Uh, so my ex and I got together in the spring semester of our freshman year, and the following year I told her that I was trans. And remember, again, we're still in the 70s. They went on forever. Mm -hmm. 1979, there's no Internet. There's really very little language for discussing um, transgender experience or identity. I didn't know um, how to explain what I felt. And my ex's response was, uh, well, you know, I don't... It's fine with me. However you feel is fine, but I want to be with a man who looks like a man. And now I would say what she, to translate it into the more sophisticated terms of today, she was saying, you know, your gender identity is your own business. Who you feel you are, male or female, that's up to you. (laughs) But I want to be with somebody whose gender expression is male. Right? So you can be uh, a man who feels like you're really a woman as long as you act like a man. (laughs) As long as you have a penis? Well, no, I mean, really, as long as, I mean, that was obviously important to her, too, but really what she was talking about was gender expression, which doesn't have much to do with genitalia, I guess, unless you're at a nudist colony. Uh It's, you know, how you dress, how you wear your hair, the way you talk, the kinds of relationships that you create. So you can have um, men with feminine gender expressions, and she didn't want to be with anybody like that. She wanted... Uh, somebody who looked like a man, who was physically male, but who also acted like conventional understandings of what a man was. Um, you know, she didn't need me to be macho or um, a star athlete, or you know. So it wasn't it wasn't that rigorous. But she wanted people who looked at me and interacted with me to not have any issues with you know wondering about my maleness or masculinity. So that was kind of the deal that we made. Um, and over the, the subsequent years, I would go through crises of, in terms of my gender identity, and I, because I never felt that I was really alive or actually really present, and that would periodically become intolerable, and I'd have like a, you know, breakdown, and I would talk about transitioning, and she would, you know, she was very consistent. She said, "Look, you know, I can't be with you if you do anything to alter your gender. I can't." So, um, so I had to choose between being with her and being loved or becoming myself. And from the time I'd been a little child, I had always chosen being loved over being myself. And it wasn't a choice I felt good about. In fact, I felt ashamed of it. But I didn't know who I was if I transitioned. I didn't know who I would be if I started living as a woman. But I did know what it was like to be loved by my ex. And I loved her, and so that was the choice I kept making. I mean, it seems to me that would have been a terrifying, I mean, really terrifying to get to the point where you could make the decision to to to, to, to change, as you're describing it, because here you do have someone who loves you and you love them, and you have no idea what it's going to be like. Um, but at some point you did. Why? You, I mean, what, yeah. yeah, what, you know, at what point was, did you say, I, I just can't do this anymore? Well, uh, after about a you know a decade or so of these crises, 
um, my ex wanted to start having children, and I was very reluctant to, for actually all the usual guy reasons. Yeah. I mean, they, you, you could have just read the stuff that I said out of the book, but we don't have enough money. We don't have enough places to all of the usual excuses. But there was another one, which was I was jealous. You know, I was jealous of her ability to have children, and I really didn't want to sort of cement my my identity as a man in that way. Um, but, but I did end up agreeing. She said this amazing thing. I said, you know, I'm really, I've read that um, transsexuals who, who do this, who is to have children, and they, you know, by middle age, they often have these spectacular breakdowns. And uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen to me. And she said, you know, I, I think, I don't think we can live our life in terms of our fears. I think we need to make things good right now, and this is going to be really good. And I thought, well, you know, that's that's right. I've spent my whole life living in terms of my fears, and um, this is uh, this is a way where I cannot do that. And so we we started having kids, and that was great. And it was also really hard because I was the dad, and that's a very gendered role, no matter how equal the care of the kids was. It's still dead. Exactly. Yeah, it's still dead. Um, And, uh, but I decided that I wasn't going to, you know, I said, okay, I'm not going to transition. I'm going to just turn this into a purely personal problem. And I had to repress myself more and more savagely. I would have breakdowns, but I kept them to myself. And then I would impose additional penalties. I sort of gave myself an obsessive-compulsive disorder, um, you know, creating all these rigid rules that had nothing to do with gender, but they had everything to do with feeling like I was about to lose control of myself because there was this desire to exist, this desire to live, that that the kids really increased because I loved them so much. (laughs) And I knew that they loved me, but I couldn't feel their love because I I wasn't, like, physically there in my body. It wasn't my body. So it got harder and harder, uh, and finally, um, I realized that I was thinking about gender all the time. Whenever I was conscious, whatever else I was doing, I was thinking about gender, and that seemed normal to me. And then I realized, actually, nobody else is thinking about gender now. Um, I'm the only one, uh, and that's not normal, and it's also boring because gender... Um, you know, as interesting as it is, if you spend like 20 or 30 years thinking about it continuously, it really does get old. Uh, and I, so I started realizing that I needed to figure out a new thing to do with my gender identity issues. And a few months later, I just got sick. It was like my mind-body relationship fell apart. I lost 30 or 40 pounds in a couple of weeks. I, I couldn't sleep. Everything that I ate, no matter how plain, gave me diarrhea and stomach cramps. So you've been um, holding everything in, and it sounds like at that point it was just, it, it, you couldn't hold it in anymore, emotionally or physically. That's right. And I decided that I was going to kill myself without telling anybody why. I thought, that'll be the best thing for my family. They won't have to deal with the gender stuff, and, uh, you know, and that'll be, that'll be better for everybody. Uh, but there were, we, were, we were pretty poor 
Um, I was an assistant professor and um, with large student loans. We didn't have very much money, and and I would didn't want to leave them destitute. So I took out a life insurance policy, but it had a two-year waiting clause on suicide. And that seemed like an intolerably long time. I just didn't know how I was going to be able to stay alive that long, but started kind of counting down the days. And in the meantime, I, I came out to a friend of mine, and she gently suggested that maybe killing myself wouldn't be the best thing for my kids. Uh, and then she made a really radical suggestion. She said, why don't you talk to a therapist? Uh-huh. A good like, friend, I must say. Yeah, she's yeah. great. Someone who loved you and cared about you. Yes, she did. And she, you know, she was Orthodox uh, Jewish woman who, um, who is a, um, a mother. Family was very important to her. And so her voice really got through to me. I felt, you know, she really... Um, I thought it was obvious that if I love my kids, I just need to kill myself. And she didn't see it that way, and so somehow that got through to me. And fortunately, um, it, 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 and then you, I'm, obviously you decided to to um, get into therapy and, and to make the change. And I mean, we only we only have a couple minutes left. It's quite a story, and obviously, I recommend that uh, listeners buy your book through the door of life because we've just covered kind of the surface, I think, of all of this of all, of your story, a Jewish journey between genders. Um, because I'd be really curious. I mean, you know, your children's reaction. I mean, your kids. Mm-hmm. You know, when you because as you said, it's not just. You know, when you become transgender, it's not just your journey; it's your whole family's journey. It's 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 um, yeah. So, um, well, just take a you know a minute or two and 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 tell us, um, you know, how did the kids respond? And uh, mm. yeah, or maybe we can't do it yeah. in a minute or two. <laughs> well, let me try. You know, because uh, because my ex, you know, really remained, you know. She would love me up until the point that I couldn't handle living as a man, and then our relationship fell apart. We still stayed together living and co-parenting under the same house for a long time um, for the sake of the kids, and then we had to tell the kids. And my my youngest was three, so she didn't really know what was going on, but I had a 7-year-old and a 13-year-old, and their reactions uh, were... Initial reactions were quite beautiful. My son put his arm around me and said, you must have been so lonely. And my daughter said, you know, it must have been terrible. You looked in the mirror and didn't see somebody who looked like you. And I thought, oh, my God, she really understands. But then, of course, um, they had a lot of other feelings also. There was, they were furious about the divorce, which was clearly my fault in their world. Um, and... It really shattered their home, and there's there's grief. They loved the man that I was, and they were losing that man. They weren't losing their parent, but it took them a long time to figure that out. They needed to see that however I looked, I was continuing to love them. I kept showing up. No matter how angry they were with me, I kept being there. I kept respecting their feelings and and loving them. And uh, all of them responded somewhat differently. Which is um, what you would expect. Each child is going to respond differently. And you're talking about your kids and blaming you for the divorce. Uh, you know, I've been through a divorce. I think kids always have to have, no matter what the circumstances are, they end up blaming one or the other or both parents. 
But I was just thinking about something you said, how they understood, you know, your feeling of having to pretend who you were. I mean, you did a great job in raising your kids. Like, they were able to say that to you or to have that understanding. I mean, I understand their anger and their grief, but at least initially to be able to, to get a feeling for what it was like for you. But you were a great parent. Well, yeah. I'm, so, I'm so proud of Sam. I, yeah. I need to tell you my little one will, will be angry if I don't, but she is, she's been reading the final chapter of the book, which starts out with a long scene of her asking me tough questions about my transition. We've talked a lot about it. And lately when we're alone, she says, okay, so you say you needed to transition to be really alive, and now you're really alive. So what does being really alive mean to you? Can you tell me how that feels? We're going to leave it on that one. That's... (laughs) That's a that's a great question. I want you know it's it, I think it's important for for listeners to get the book and to to you know read it obviously the, the the whole thing the whole your memoir. Thanks so much. I mean thanks so much for being on the show today, Joy. It's really been a pleasure and and sharing your whole story, not the whole story, but part of the story. Thank you so much. Yeah, really great appreciate it. Great to have you through the door of life: a Jewish journey between genders. Joy Layden. I'm Catherine Zocher, social worker with a microphone, and we're going to have to say goodbye. Uh, you've been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you enjoyed the morning. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 